Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Restoring Life podcast. This is season 3 where we're focusing on us and looking at some of the biggest stories that are starting to shift and change across the systems of our planet. Um, I am here today with Rowan Conway, um, a friend and director of innovation and development at the Royal Society of Arts. And it's wonderful to have you join us, Rowan, because I think you have this incredibly unique perspective on uh, some of the stories that are starting to break through in the systems of our institutions and some of our societies as well. So thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. And, um, you know, I'm always interested because I think, especially in times like these, it's so easy to get lost in the what is breaking down around us. Um, and we'll loop back to that, I think, in a bit as a necessary function of innovation. But I'm really interested um, for you to talk a little bit about what you see breaking through right now in your work. Okay. Um, sorry about the any background I know, noise. <laughs> I know, just so you know, we're actually sat in a corner of the RSA uh, huddled on chairs, if you can picture us doing that whilst you listen. So the background noise just adds to the effect, huh? <laughs> so the RSA has been a kind of home to social innovation for 250 years, and I think, you know, recognising that it is a hubbub of innovation <laughs> is part of um, understanding the kind of longer story of innovation and not getting lost in that kind of immediate we need to just ideation if you like getting stuck in ideas which is one of the interesting things about sitting in this organization is that we do take a deeper systems perspective or an understanding that that innovation happens not for now but for you know an ongoing right. ways of thinking about how we solve, solve social challenges um so in terms of um, my role here, I see a bigger picture around thinking in systems, but we also see that there's an, a need to kind of act entrepreneurially. And we've seen that really is really emerging across all of the different social challenge work that we're doing. So in this organisation, we've had challenge prizes since the very, its very inception. So it was formed in a coffee house in... 1754 where by some social reformers who, who saw and were concerned by certain social ills if you like and wanted to work out how they could deploy their resources and their creativity to making change in the world so that those that became the kind of um the rsa premium which was kind of challenge, the original challenge prices where grant funds were made for creative entrepreneurs to come up with ideas that resulted in things like the chimney sweep and a you know, a wide range of sort of technical solutions to social problems. We see a lot of the same thing happening now. Um, and the challenge, I think, for us is to, to think beyond the product or the solution and start thinking more deeply into human systems. And, and for me, how that shows up in my work is actually that products and service design is actually really easy, that, that there's an awful lot of innovation that's not even that disruptive, but that's creating sort of systems that are, or, or processes that, that improve society in some way or another. We've got really good at that. What we are less good at is creating institutions or how institutions can adapt to being innovative. So where I see the real interesting thing in my work is how do we collaborate on mm. problems as opposed to how do we create new ideas for problems or create new solutions for problems. 
Um, and there's a real tension in that. So in terms of the question of what's emerging or what's getting better, um, I think the, the, the thing that's emerging is that there's a real appetite for entrepreneurialism, both from a sort of supply and demand side, if you want to get technical with, there's a lot of people who are self-identifying as entrepreneurs. So there's also a really strong need for innovation and entrepreneurship in, or in organisations and in institutions. But then when you get to that next level or the next tier of what do we collectively identify as? How, who are we as an organisation, as an institution? The norms and shared um, kind of ways of working are much slower to adapt. Mm. So while you have this kind of you know, new generation, if you like, of new power values of being creative, of being entrepreneurial, of being digital and agile. You're also seeing that our institutional or our corporate organisations find it incredibly hard to actually operate in that same way. So there are two things behind that. One is is just literally kind of the, the culture problems, which, you know, right. other people can speak in far more, you know, far more, um, cleverly about culture than I can, but you know the cultural stuff that has been going on in organisations for a long time, just fundamentally shifting from this old power norm of you know, hierarchical power into a new power norm of, of agile approaches, and actually that's where there's a real what we've started calling system immune response, where there's just an immunity to change, an immunity to actually know how to operate in a new and agile way. Then there's a, a, a second um, tier to that, which is is actually at the kind of structural level of institutions, insofar as in many instances, it's not just culture, it's not just why won't people collaborate, it's actually the structures or the incentives that are built into, baked into systems, which actually make it impossible to collaborate. And those things are becoming ever more clear. So things, for example, like if you want to collaborate with a university, everything has to meet the criteria for the ref, you know, and for it to meet the criteria for the ref, it needs to go into a three-star cited public, you know, or journal, academic journal. Now, for that to be the case and also meet a collaborative goal, the collaborative goal will always become secondary. Right. Similarly, you know, we did some work with Innovate UK and it, it, it transpired that they can put, their primary goal is to, is to surface new enterprises. So you can have, surface new enterprises for public good without actually ever solving the problem, but you've, you've hit your institutional goal. So getting people to collaborate with these structural problems, that's, I think, where the deeper tensions lie. Culturally, I think the cultural norms are becoming more, you know, like design thinking and how we operate in more innovative ways yeah. are becoming far more pervasive. You know, they've been talked about in Harvard Business Review and Fast Company forever. So people are kind of going, well, maybe that's real. But actually, it's beyond the culture and into the institutional structures. And increasingly, what I think is really interesting is the con concept of institutional identities. As, as us as humans, we actually do really seek tribes and societal Absolutely. systems. And in certainly in developed Western countries, we've really made that space with our work and with our workplaces. And so we don't really know how to show up as humans. We wait for the norms and the structures to be told to us mm -hmm. and we adhere to those structures. For us to be genuinely transformatively innovative as opposed to just disrupt, which many people do, or maybe efficient, to be transformative, we're going to have to work beyond the institutional structure. And that, I think, is both 
you know, this the, the absolute locus of my inquiry, but it's also, um, I'm not sure I see the seeds of hope. I see the huge amount of frustration at bureaucracies and the inability right. for us to move. So I see that there's a platform for change, but I don't know that I see that there is, I haven't seen that many examples of inspiring change. I, maybe there's been some in the in the wider world, you know, I saw some, some interesting collaborations in Helsinki when I was there recently, but they're few and far between still. Yeah, I was going to ask you that actually, because it's one thing to say that we're increasingly living in a global world and we have many multinational organisations now who, some better than others, embrace what I would call true diversity, not just diversity as a tick box, mm. and there is a lot of frustration, as you say which in a way can be a catalyst for things to change and for innovation. And yet we're in that really sticky period right now where the old structures and cultures are just hanging on for what seems like dear life. Mm. Um, you know, although, again, looking at it in a different way, that's also causing a lot of really innovative entrepreneurial people to jump outside those structures and disrupt and innovate from the outside in. So... You know, in the long cycles of time, we're absolutely in a transformation. I think we can agree about that. Whether we choose to label it bad or good or successful or unsuccessful, who can tell, right? Mm. The time will tell. Um, but you, I mean, you go all over the world. Uh, you attend conferences, think tanks. You know, you really do have this global perspective. Do you see any uh, particular cultural identities and stories leading the pack in terms of thinking and acting differently in this way? I think that what I've observed from the US, um, and, and this is kind of, that is that there is a, a strong culture of entrepreneurialism that runs through just um, national identity. And as a result of that, I have seen a lot more kind of just do it type of yeah. attitude, um, which means that there's but but I think potentially that's that's pivoted slightly too much towards the venture capital model of of the kind of unicorn business. So then you even get with social innovation this model, which is a is a bit, you know, how do we become the platform for? And there are questions about not everything needs to scale. But I do think it's interesting how some venture philanthropists in the US are changing the game of what it means to innovate for social good um, and I think that they are trying um, a lot of very interesting new models of change. I think in Finland it was an interesting journey to observe how experimentation is really taking hold in government as well as in um, universities so there is a kind of a more of a national perspective of thinking we want to be recognized as experimenters as opposed to um, seeing ourselves as the, um, if you like, the difference, I guess, is the, that you might find that in the UK, Russell Group universities would compete with each other to be number one as in terms of, you know, global citations or global articles published, citations, you know, the kind of notoriety really matters or, or being right. renowned. Whereas what you saw a little bit more in Finland was how do we actually work show the process innovation so show that we can work together in terms of collaborative experimentation and that that in its own right was strong i think in the uk i find it hard to really make this kind of innovation visible to people 
as organisations, there's an awful lot of visibility of things like challenge prizes or um, you know civic innovation challenges. There was the Longitude Prize. There's been the Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge. There's lots of things which seem like they're that they are doing something innovative, but actually this collaborative way of working that I've seen in Finland and in other Nordic countries and also in Canada is is taking a really long time for people to believe that it's real. Right. Um, certainly in the UK. So it's an it's an interesting for me thing for me to see how long does it take before old systems really recognise, even when quite profound amount of like let's say a number of funders, for example, have started thinking systemically, have started thinking they want to work in different ways. Actually, it takes a really long time for practice to go, oh, I see that this thing is moving in its direction. And I don't know, I don't know, you know, seeds of hope in there. I'm not sure that I see, I think there is a sort of collapse in an old system where there will be, therefore, some kind of interest from these global players to work with us right. but not necessarily as leaders I think that's maybe a bit harsh but yeah no I think it's valid though um because I know a shared inquiry you and I both have is this idea of, of human psychology and what is almost the meta-narrative that sits underneath and underpins some of these sticking points that mm. we currently find ourselves in and I was just you know I was pondering this just the other day about what is it about human psychology that almost almost always has to be pushed to near on breaking point before mm. we are forced into attempting something new you know this kind of idea it goes beyond burying your head in the sand mm. it's almost just that sense of a idea of oh well what can I do or what can our organization do or you know I mean how do you see that in the UK in particular mm. in this environment do you think we've hit or <laughs> hitting breaking point yet where uh, yeah some of these seeds of hope might germinate <laughs> brexit breaking point <laughs> brexit um, breaking point exactly i think it's a really good question because you know brexit provides a huge amount of collapse that should force innovation but i'm what i've seen is a kind of fatalism and yeah. and despair without an awful lot of and I, and maybe this is because there's a there's a lack of belief in the political process. So there's a kind of holding out that actually there will be, from those people who care most, and let's say the people who care most about it not happening are business and academia. Yeah. I think that, you know, those that group of intelligent people are kind of hoping that the system <sighs> fails and therefore there's another referendum because they can't believe that they would get to yeah. a no-deal exit. I think what will be interesting is if this actually makes it through Parliament, and I know this is of a very of a moment, right. unfortunately. But if this process makes it through Parliament, actually, how quickly the adaptation is going to have to happen to say, okay, how do we Absolutely. now that it's real? How do we actually do this? And the same is true in policy, because what you're seeing really is cut and paste jobs across all of the policy landscape to say. We, we have, you know, there are thousands of policies that need to be rewritten. And effectively, all they can really do is scan the policies for relevance and then just copy and paste. Because there's not enough time to innovate those policies. So if they really have to, in two years, get to a position where we are actually outside of the EU and functioning with our own policies, they're going to be, there's going to be a real deficit of innovation as opposed to a, a surfeit of innovation. Yeah. 
because there's just not room for it. There's so much copy and pasting has to, has to happen. So I just, I don't know that those, you know, maybe those are the three angles that are really suffering, policy, academia, business, they don't know how to respond. And, mm. you know, trying to sit with some of that and go more beyond what I would call the pixie dust of innovation. And that's what, in many instances, you're finding corporates just saying, I want some... I want some light relief. I want I want some pixie dust. I want to show that I've got an innovation lab or I've got something that's actually um, a valid way of um, sort of generating innovation. That in its own right is, is now coming to a sort of end of its, right. its useful life. There is no point in having continuous or, or generating continuous innovation sprints that can't actually be delivered. And when you find service designs that have come out in a bit of a vacuum to be able to I'm trying to think of examples of um, these various sort of challenge prizes that I've seen which will 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 try and define a solution to a social problem and you'll come up with lots of good ideas but with no real delivery or, or implementation or context, capability yeah. so yeah, yeah. And, and context is key you know it's coming up with some idea for you know a, a new design for something it then becomes incredible, incredibly impossible to deliver. Yeah. And then you just, what you get with that is a sense of cynicism, futility. What's the point in doing this? Because what they were looking at was trying to find a heroic entrepreneur to solve it, as opposed to saying collaboratively, what does it exactly. look like to work as systems entrepreneurs? And that's the bit where, you know, that's the, the, where I'm working is in this space to say, how might we find these system entrepreneurs? I come up against an awful lot of reasons why not. But at the same time, a, a huge amount of desire to work out how might we. So it's not like there's fatalism writ large, but there is certainly a long way to go before people feel enough pain to operate or to do something. I know, on that hopeful note, yeah. right? Um, no, And I do think you're right. This is part of the bigger shift we're seeing. And it's really generalised and simplified to say we're moving away from a story of me and competition and the hero leader, the hero brand, the hero organization, the hero entrepreneur into one of we, which is collective action, collaboration, co-creation, you know, but we don't a lot in a lot of places, you don't know what that feels like or mm. what facilitates that change even, you know? So I agree. I think there's a lot of desire and not much knowledge uh, or even instinct about how to go about that shift. And, you know, I mean, I guess the, you know, the practical piece here is um, if you were to be advising organizations, institutions that are hungry for going beyond the pixie dust of innovation into something that is more contexted, something that is more systemic, um, something that does focus on the we of innovation and creation, what are some of the things that you would point organizations at at least as starting points from where they start to explore this more systemic approach so i think um a book i read last year was a book called uh, collaborating with the enemy by <laughs> a guy called adam kahan and he is i thought i was very taken with it he's written a number of books which um you know, he wrote power and love and he's always been trying to build this context for how do you how do we innovate together and i much of his work until this book i found really challenging because I think it was too it didn't go to the why we don't you know it's, it sort of explained the why we should right. and didn't really go into yes but, but 
why is it that we don't operate as a we, we operate as a, as a me? And I think, you know, I definitely think that my life's work is to move beyond this win-lose and into win-win. But this book was really interesting because it, it gave kind of four ways of thinking about collaboration and saying that we, we go, there are, and, and I'm testing myself and all of my instincts against this, these, this framework all the time, which is there's either force, mm-hmm. so, you know, my idea is better than yours, you need to submit. There's submission, which is your idea is better than mine, I need to submit. And so mergers and acquisitions are always based on that. There's exit, which is this is too much, I can't actually either force or submit my idea, so therefore I'm, I'm checking out, I can't be part of this. And he says the fourth way is stretch collaboration, which is where we have to really absorb and understand that wider picture. Now, I don't see anyone doing that. I, I see, and I also, I've done micro experiments into our own practices on projects to say when we work with partners, how do we really show up as, as different and what, where is parity of esteem? How does it actually work? It's really hard to be mindful and, and actually I'm about to undertake a, a PhD or become a PhD candidate in understanding the impacts of social cognition on our performance and our decision making right. because social cognition is is basically how our brain operates when it's working in a social environment and collaboration is fundamentally a social environment. We often talk about how to make things frictionless and actually what working with other people does is create friction and you cannot avoid that issues for the sound um, and and so I don't have any real answers other than I know that the work is to work on what stretch collaboration looks like because it will always contain resistance and it will always be painful and I think that sometimes we go into this idea of a we being comfortable and actually a we is possibly the most uncomfortable place that we'll go um, so and, and really just working on how and what are the mechanisms by which we really understand how to be present with each other and what it's need, what's needed for us to hear each other. I don't know what the answers are, but I certainly know that that's, that's the process that we need to go through. <laughs> I know. We, we will attempt to edit some of this out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that point about we, particularly collective we, in ever-widening circles, is deeply uncomfortable, especially right now, um, as we are looking, we are looking around an increasingly interconnected world in many different ways, and are less and less able to view our own life as a microcosm, you know, and I think sometimes that shift in meta-narrative, if we want to call it that, is incredibly painful um, and almost evokes a different kind of self and collective responsibility. But in a way, particularly in the Western world, the way that we have been educated and brought up and socialized is the opposite of that. So we are actually being dragged, kicking and screaming into a practice of a new narrative that we haven't enacted in many ways. Um, So it is uncomfortable. It is jumping outside of our narrative barrier into new landscape, um, but it seems like the way forward in terms of actually creating change outside of ourselves, creating change as a we, rather than as a hero me. Yeah, I think um, I was very struck with, I read read another book this 
summer called um, Who Do We Choose To Be by Margaret Wheatley. And I think what was interesting about that, and when she's, she feels deeply cynical um, about how everything's going in the world, but, but I, it made me reflect on something that I was naturally saying all the time and whether or not I actually believed it. And one, this is the power of networks. And you hear a lot in, in the new power domain about the power of networks. And I think that what talking in networks does is it, it undermines what a relationship actually takes. It assumes that we can move quickly into co-opting others. So while I, th I see networks and our networked potential as part of a new power paradigm and how we work together, it does, we really have to think about how we anchor things in trust because actually just deploying network agility doesn't actually mean anything. Right. So that going down to what is it to work together? What is it to share together? What is it to work and respond to things relatively quickly? But how do you create shared meaning through a network? And how do you grow a network? And how do you scale a network? Those questions also kind of go against what it is when we go back to the story of we. The story of we has to have a sort of its own meaning to go beyond that I am understanding me in the, in the system, in the wider system, to have a, a, a kind of both a meso layer and a macro layer, mm -hmm. you know, the meso layer of my relationship with you and my network, and then the macro layer of my relationship with the world. To be able to understand those things, I need to be able to process that. I need to be able to understand what's our relationship. Do we trust each other? Do we understand each other? Do we share, have shared norms? All of that is going to be incredibly hard to host. So the hosting of these collaborations is a really important role of the future because to get us ostensibly we need to become more human and more connected in a different way to the way we are now and I think even with our, a lot of our new power paradigm stuff it still makes it too transactional mm. it still focuses too much on gathering convening having larger networks having digital networks having you know social networks and those things actually can be very isolating as well Perhaps it's the shift from more to better. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Which is probably a good place <laughs> to bring this very quick dialogue to a close. But thank you, Rowan. That was really insightful. It's been a while since I've caught up with your work. And my God, good luck on your PhD. No, I can't think of a more relevant topic yeah. right now, <laughs> given, uh, yeah, the Brexit breaking point, yes, <laughs> as exactly. we said. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. <laughs>